Let's pray. Father, thank you that you rejoice over us with singing because of Christ and his work on our behalf. We are in and of, of ourselves. We are grass and we will fall and we will fail. And we increasingly are reminded of that. And yet your word will stand forever. Its truth will never fail. You are faithful and your word is faithful to us. And Father, this morning we ask that you would take this word and as you have promised, you would work it into our lives, that it would cut deep, that our hearts would be responsive to it, that you would transform us by the power of your word and your spirit at work, that you would use your messenger this morning to change us so that you would receive great glory. Guide us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to the book of uh, 1 John, uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through chapter 2, 2. So, the letter of John, first letter of John. I'm going to read the first chapter and then the first two verses of the second chapter. Your Bibles probably automatically fall open to Hebrews by now. Maybe it's Hebrews 6, so you'll have to kind of retrain them at least for this morning. Let's fill in for Bill. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Bill has uh, been working through the book of Hebrews, and he spent the last two week, weeks in Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12, and he's going to spend probably another week or two in it. And I thought it would be interesting just to, to do Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12 again, but uh, I decided to move in a little bit different direction and look in, in the book of First John. And uh, I ran that by Bill, and he said, no, why don't you just do something else. He wanted to pick it up when he comes back next week. Um, but as we look at the letter, First John, I'm going to focus primarily on verses 5 through 10. In that section, we're going to see that what John is emphasizing and he's describing and explaining is how the Christian, how a person, a Christian is to deal with the sin that they find still evident in their lives. And I don't know about you, but as I have walked with Christ for a number of years, and, and hopefully many more, that I've had a series of kind of situations I've found myself in in dealing with the sin in my own life. Knowing that my sin is forgiven 
And yet at different points, I find the struggle with that sin to be so great as in almost to bring a type of frustration to throw up my hands and say, I give up. What's the point of even battling with this? It is everywhere. From the minute I get up in the morning to the moment I go to bed at night, it's there. It's ever before me. And I don't know what to do. And I almost give up. The other side I found myself to lean towards is pure apathy, where I found through seasons of just dealing with it, I go, I kind of slip into this unresponsive, kind of calloused attitude towards my own sin. And there's an apathy that's there, kind of a nonchalant attitude that I have. And I find that at that point when I wake up, that there's a danger in that as well. And regardless of where we might find ourselves from this frustration of wanting to to give up to not even caring about it, the bottom line is how we respond to the sin that we deal with that we have in our lives is crucial to a Christian in our growth. And as John addresses this issue, he wants him to understand how to respond rightly to it. How a Christian finding themselves to be forgiven and yet dealing with this, what do we do with this? And that's the question that he's going to address in verses 5 through 10. But to give a little context and to, to set up the first four verses, it's important that we touch on those to even understand how he begins to address the issue of sin in verses 5 through 10. John is writing a letter to a group of churches, probably in the area of Ephesus, and it's a letter that's going to be circulated. And essentially, he wants to encourage them in their faith. He wants to help them to continue to walk. And their particular situation is such that they have watched, these different churches have watched groups of people leave them. To leave the orthodox teaching about Christ and who he is to follow other ideas of who Christ. Essentially what these folks who were leaving the faith were denying was who Christ was. They were denying that he was the Messiah. They were denying his incarnation, the teaching that God came in the form of a human And this new teaching that they were embracing was in some way affecting their ability to understand that God could take on the form of humanity. That the pure and holy God could take on the corrupt nature of humanity. And so they were leaving that behind and they would say things as if it it seemed as if Christ lived in, in a physical form. And so they were leaving the teaching about who Christ was and they were embracing and mixing other philosophies with Christian teaching. And so they were corrupting the faith. And so this was the situation that the church was in. These people were leaving, and John wants to write them to assure them of the faith that they have believed in. Not so different in many ways as the Hebrews, the letter that Bill is walking through with the Hebrews, to encourage them to stay and endure, except John takes a little bit different route. He does begin by dealing with the objective aspect of their faith. And so he begins with Christ and who Jesus is, and he reminds them that he was real. He did take on, he was God taking on the form of a man. And so there's no question there. And he wants to to base their faith purely on the objective truth, historical truth of Christ. And he touches on that in the first verse. And then he goes on, he wants to help them as well to assure them to see the evidence of Christ's work in their lives and transforming them. And reminding them of the love that they have for each other. Reminding them of the fellowship that they share with each other. And at the same time, challenging them to love even more. At the same time, challenging them to, to enjoy and to be a part of that fellowship even more. Challenging them to not allow sin to dominate their lives. And by in so doing, 
this assurance is granted both objectively in the teaching about Christ and subjectively in their experience as they look at the transformation that is taking place and will take place as they walk in Christ. So he wants to assure them. And as he assures assure them, he wants to refute those who would disagree, these folks who have left their number. Because if you think about it, there was a great influence that those people would have because their message, these people who had left, their message is this. Well, the faith in Christ is a great starting point, but guess what? There's more. There's something else. There's this new kind of truth. There's new ideas out there that we need to embrace. And so while you might begin with faith in Christ, that's a great starting point. It's just the beginning, and there's more that you need to believe. So you leave that behind, and you move on. And that had a great influence on those who would be listening to them in the church. And, and so John wants to refute this by saying, no, 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 no. It's not any more than this. It is, it is purely about the person of Christ. And in the prologue, these first four verses, we get just a little taste as he set the tone, sets the, sets the tone of the letter of these things. And he bases the gospel and the objective truth of who Christ is. And then he wants to paint a picture of the essence of what the gospel is. Let me tell you what I mean, what he means. Verse 1 John says, that which was from the beginning, he writes, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Note in that verse the references to the senses. John is saying, no, I have seen him. No, I have touched him. I have heard him. I have beheld Jesus Christ. I was there. He says, in light of these things that these other folks might be saying about, no, he wasn't real, he wasn't the Messiah, he didn't take on real humanity, John says, no, that is not true. He bases what they believe in the person of Jesus Christ in historical fact. Because he says, I was there, I experienced it, and I was not the only one. There were many of us, and we saw. And what I pass on to you is true, and it's objective, and it's real. So don't leave that behind. The Christian faith has at least a couple of planks of which who is Jesus. And we see that he is both human and he is God. He is deity and he is humanity. And to remove either one of those, we lose, it, we lose out on what, it, what the gospel actually is. And in this verse, John says, that which was from the beginning, who has always been, that's Jesus and deity, came to us. And I touched him, we saw him, we experienced him and he was real and so he was human and so both of these are real in light of what these other folks were saying also John wants them to know that the essence of the gospel is that it is a message that's embodied in a person it's a message that's embodied in a person looking at the end of verse one there he says after describing this situation concerning the word of life Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. As you read through that, you ask the question, is he referring to Jesus explicitly or is he talking in this word of life, the eternal life? Is he referring to the message that Jesus brought? And the answer to that question is yes. He is referring to both. He's referring to Jesus and the message. Because for John, the two are the same. The person of Jesus and his message are virtually synonymous, are the same. To know the person is to know the message. To know the message is to know the person. 
to have a relationship with Jesus is to understand that he has life and in him is only is the only place we find life. He himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is who I am. And certainly the things that he said help us understand who he is and what his message, but his message is as much about what he did as much as what he said. And so we see that the message of the gospel is embodied in a person, and it still is. Jesus has left, and he's left his spirit to indwell us, and this message of the gospel still lives in us. We can't separate who we are from what we say. And John is clear throughout his letter that we embody this message in the way we live. And to somehow disconnect that, to say I can live a certain kind of way and yet say that I'm a Christian is to misunderstand the essence of the gospel. And it's embodied in the way we live. Look at a couple passages with me. Look at uh, 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. 1 John 2, 9 and 10. Whoever says... He is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. It says if you say this and yet you hate your brother, it's not true. What you say must be lived out. Verses, or chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Another page over. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John says it's evident who the ones are from God and who the ones are from Satan. By the way they live, if they practice sin or if they abide and live in righteousness. And then look at one more with me in in verse 18 of chapter 3 also. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. His challenge to them is that love, this message of the gospel, is embodied not just in what we say, it's embodied in what we do. And it's, it's presented truthfully to others. So the essence of the gospel is that it, it is a message embodied in a person. It's a message that's embodied in us, in the way that we live. And then in the end of that prologue in verse 4, John reminds us that the ultimate goal of which he's writing and proclaiming these things is that they would have fellowship with each other, and fellowship with the Father, and that there would be this complete, fulfilled joy, and ultimately in eternity. These first four verses set the tone and the direction of the letter. He based his basis in that Christ is both God and man. That the essence of the gospel can't be can't be separated from what we say and what we do. The two are are connected in our lifestyle as well. That the ultimate end is about fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. And it's important for us to understand this, even as we go on to understand, as he explains to us the issue and how we deal and respond to sin. Because the bottom line, we find ourselves to be Christians. Those who have been forgiven of our sin and yet deal with it on an ongoing basis. And we need to respond rightly. Our assurance is connected with this. Our assurance is connected in the way that we understand it and the way we respond to it. Because we know that the gospel is expressed in the way we live And that our sin affects our fellowship with God. And so the question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with the sin that we deal with day in and day? And I think it needs to be said, even as I start, maybe you've heard this, we know this, as those who have trusted Christ, that the penalty of sin has been paid for, that it's been dealt with on the cross. 
and that the power of sin, its dominion in our lives has been canceled. It is no longer, it no longer does it have authority to rule us for those who are in Christ. At the same time, though, it has a power of a salesperson to persuade us of its benefits over and against what Christ would offer to us. And so its power isn't in its authority as much as in its ability to sell us a bill of, a bill of goods. However, the power and the, and the penalty and the power of sin has been dealt with. We still live in the presence of sin. It's still real. It's still here. And so we can't walk around as if it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a real thing that we deal with. And so John wants to deal with this primarily to assure his, his Christians that he's writing to to know how to deal with this. As well, he's, he's dealing with an issue there. It seems that these folks who have left them, who have denied the Incarnation, basically have also denied the aspect of sin in their lives. And they've even said, it, it seems that they've said something to the effect that, that sin isn't a category that necessarily pertains to them anymore, that they're no longer guilty of it. And what you have, it seems that their lifestyle, their behavior, their ethics... Were, were not informed at all by God's righteousness and his holiness. And so they didn't really care how they lived. There was an apathy that they had in the way that they lived before Christ. And so that's the situation that John is writing into to encourage his believers. And he begins in verse 5 here. Let me read the section. I'm going to break it apart here. His message in dealing with sin. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 5, Paul, or Paul, John, who would say that? John begins with God. As we deal with our sin as Christians, we have to start in the right place. To understand that, we need to understand who God is and what his character is. And he says, the message that we have heard and proclaimed to you is, very simple statement, God is light. And then he emphasizes that statement with the next phrase, and in him there's no darkness None at all. Strong negative there. There is no darkness that we find in God. He is light. And as we see that, it can mean any number of things. It can be misunderstood, certainly. But what, is, what does John mean when he says that God is light? To answer the question, there's a couple of ways that we can go about it. First, we want to know that it doesn't mean the inverse of that. It doesn't mean that light is God. Other religions have taken that statement and said that God is li- light is God, so we worship light. No, God is light. It's not the other way around. What does light do? Look around. We go, we can see each other because the lights are on this room. This morning when I came in, I turned the lights on so I could see and didn't bump into the new furniture out there. Um, It's important to be able to see. Light reveals what is hidden. It uncovers things in our life. The physical light does that. And God, in a similar way, spiritually, opens our eyes, enables to see what's there, what's real spiritually, and to understand the things in this world. So it reveals, it illumines, it, it makes things visible. Uh, Psalm 119.105, David writes, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path, that it, it helps me to see where I'm going spiritually, how I'm living. 
Christ is referred to as the light of the world. He says himself, actually, I am the light of the world. By seeing me, through me, you actually can see and understand where we are. And a passage that, that Bill has touched on, which doesn't explicitly refer to light, but captures the same idea of exposing things, is, is Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about 12, or 12 and 13, everything being open and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. God's light pierces into our lives and opens and uncovers it through the power of his word. Light also refers, refers to what it does. It also refers to God's knowledge, that he knows everything and reveals, certainly to us, that which we can understand. Um, it's uh, his moral perfection and his beauty and his majesty, that he's morally perfect, that he's pure. Light really more describes his attributes than is a attribute or an an attribute, okay? It describes his attributes. It describes every aspect of who God is. He is brilliant. He is, he is light and reveals. He is be, he's beautiful. He's majestic for we to see him. And so even though it's hard to get a picture necessarily in our minds what that is like, the fact that we can see, we can understand, he, he allows us to see these things. He also, his brightness and who he is satisfies us. I, as I was thinking about this idea, uh, uh, image came to mind, uh, a picture from a uh, uh, book, The Voyage of the Don Treader uh, by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't. But um, I love these stories. But near the end of this particular story, it's a voyage, it's an adventure of those who are on the Don Treader. And we have Edmund, we have Lucy, we have the Prince Cas- or Caspian, who is the, the captain of the ship. And we have Reepicheep, who is a little mouse, who can't wait to get to the Eastern Ocean and his greatest desire is to get to Aslan's country. He longs to see Aslan's country. If you can read it, you just catch this longing to see God. And it just captivates you. But Reepicheep, as they're going along on this, uh, on this voyage, and they're heading towards the Eastern Ocean, they've had all their ventures really are behind them. They're just kind of floating along. And this mouse jumps into the water, and he takes a drink of the, wa- of the, of the ocean water, and he finds it to be sweet. And they realize, everybody else, as he tastes this water and finds this water to be sweet, that the sweetness of the water is an indication that they are close to Aslan's country. And indeed, even the sun is brighter and brighter as they head into the east. I want to read a section here as they taste this water and how they describe it and what it does to them. After he tastes it and they realize this, then at last everyone understood. Let me have a bucket, Rhinalf, said Drinian. It was handed to him and lowered, lowered, it up, lowered it, and up it came. The water shone in it like glass. Perhaps your majesty would like to taste it first, said Drinian to Caspian. The king took the bucket in both hands, raised it to his lips, sipped and drank deeply, and raised his head. His face was changed, not only his eyes, but everything about him seemed to be brighter. Yes, he, yes, he said, it is sweet, it's real water. I'm sure I'm, I'm not sure that it's not going to kill me, but if it is the de- but it is the death I would have chosen if I had known about it till now. What do you mean? asked Edmund. It it's like light more than anything else, said Caspian. That is what it is, said Reepicheep. Drinkable light. We must be very the, very near the end by now. There was a moment's silence, and Lucy knelt down on the deck and drank from the bucket. 
It's the loveliest thing I've ever tasted. She said, and, and with a kind of a gasp, but oh, it's strong. We shan't need anything to eat now. The light of the water, the light of the sky transformed them. It satisfied them. And so, as, as John here says that God is light, it's a picture for us that God is one that satisfies, that transforms us. The light of his glory will change us. So we understand that he is light. And then he goes on in verse 7 to describe what this light does or what we're to do with it. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So he says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have this kind of we have two things, fellowship and cleansing. What's it mean to walk in the light? First and for, first of all, to walk in the light simply means to bring all of our lives into the presence of God. Now, it's not like he doesn't see it, but it means to open our lives and say here we are, to reveal ourselves to him, at the same time to ask him to shine his light into our hearts, to reveal the sin in our lives and the things that are displeasing to him that are ultimately hurtful to us. And there's two things that he says that will happen as we open our lives, as we walk in this light. The first one is fellowship with each other. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I first, first few times I read that, it surprised me that he would say we had fellowship with each other. The first thing that would kind of catch me was that I would think he would say fellowship with God. And indeed, we do as we walk in the light. But he says we have fellowship with each other. And indeed, to have fellowship with each other is a reflection, a manifestation of fellowship ultimately with God. We find as we do that, as we walk in the light, that there's this deep communal kind of relationship that we can have with each other. Because there's nothing hidden in our lives. We have, if you will, laid ourselves bare before God. No reason to hide who we are. And therefore, no reason to hide who we are to each other. As some have said, we're able to live with um, or live life with the roof off and the walls down. And so there's a fellowship that comes through living and walking in the light. And then we're cleansed by his blood is the second thing that John tells us. That, that as we bring our lives into the light and he reveals the sin in our lives, that there is provision for that sin that we see. And we're so thankful that God doesn't expose everything at once. Otherwise, we would be overwhelmed. But as he shines his life in segments of, our, of our, his light into our life in segments, we see sin we confess it, we bring it to him, and there's provision, there's cleansing of the guilt of our sin in the process of that. So John calls us to walk in the light, even as he is in the light. But then he goes on to talk about the, the danger of sin. He describes it for us, and really in a progressive kind of way. Verses 6, verses 8, and verses 10. That there's a great danger in denying sin, a danger to ourselves. Look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 6 says that if we say we have fellowship and yet walk in darkness, that we lie. That we present an illusion to those around us. That we don't practice or do the truth. We don't live truthful lives. If we say this way, say this and we live in this way. And then in verse 8, we see that where's the lie go? From the illusion, from lying to others, we lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin and the truth is not in us. So we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We lie to others and we lie to ourselves. And then look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
We're saying, God, you're the liar. And what happens is we turn everything upside down. Instead of admitting and confessing what's true of us and our sin, we actually are saying, no, God, you're the liar. My reality is what's true. My illusion is true. And what you say is false. You know, in the end, what we say is, I don't need Christ. There's a downward spiral of sin that, from lying to others to lying to ourselves and then ultimately making God to be a liar. We begin with an illusion that we contrive. We say, this is, this is what's true, and we justify and rationalize the sin in our lives. Experienced it. I've been there. And the danger of sin is that it's so reasonable at times. Having lunch with a friend this week, and we're talking about this. That sin seems so reasonable, what it offers, what it says to us. It seems reasonable at the right time. We go, this seems right. I shouldn't have to live like this. I shouldn't be expected to put up with this. On and on it goes in our own minds. It presents in our minds, in our illusion, a reasonable argument to participate, to move away from Christ and move towards it. And yet the danger there is that it leads, leads reasonableness leads to an apathy, a disconcern about sin in our lives. And it ultimately affects our fellowship with each other and our fellowship with God. Because we can't live in fellowship if we're living this kind of a lie. Um, give you an example. Not a personal example. I'll give you another example. Uh, say that I have a checkbook, and in my checkbook register, it says I have a balance of $10,000. Okay? And to me, that's, that's true, okay? That's a true statement that I have this balance in my, in my checkbook. However, I, I live the, as if that is true. But if you go to the bank and the bank says, no, that's not really true. What's really true is that you have a, negative, a balance of a negative $10,000. You have a deficit. You don't have a balance. You have a deficit. And yet the whole time I'm living as if this balance is true, that I have this amount of money. Now, let me say, I mean... Our checkbook is done by my wife, and so there's no chance of this happening to us with her running if I did. It's hard to say. But the reality is what needs to happen in that situation, if that were true, is I need to reconcile my balance with what's really ultimately true. And no matter what I might think is true, in my own illusion, it needs to be meshed with reality. And the same is true in our own lives as we deal with sin. We need God to come in and to reveal the sin in our lives. And we need to align our count, our balance, if you will, with his. What God sees is reality. And we reconcile what we see with his, not the other way around, like we're tempted to do and sin draws us to do. We want to walk in the light, and yet sin is with us day in and day out. What do we do? Verse 9. Verse 9, John gives us, if you will, the answer How do we deal with this? In verse 9 he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says that if we confess, we don't deny, we don't lie about it, we don't lie to others, we don't lie to ourselves, we don't lie to God. We just openly admit what's true, that I have sinned, that I've made, I've violated God's law. It means to acknowledge, it means to bring into the light. To confess means to align my perspective with God's. It means to reconcile my account with his. To say, no, I'm in the deficit here. Um, I, need, I need you to provide for me. If you will, turn to Psalm 32. Have maybe the best picture in Psalm 32 of, of confession 
and what sin does in our lives prior and what it does after and what happens after we've confessed our sins of David. This was read in the um, not as a responsive reading, but in the worship time. Verse chapter 32, I'm going to read one through five. This is following David's sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, and then his, uh, his murdering of, of her husband. Um, responds to that. Verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in, those in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. NIV says here, then, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see there where David says, prior to my confession, even though everybody else knew about it, others knew what was going on, prior to his confession, acknowledging before the Lord what he had done, what was, what was true of him. This, there was a strength that was sapped. Your hand was heavy upon me. And indeed what God does in our own lives is we walk with sin that's unconfessed and unrepented of. There is a weight on us and there should be a weight on us of conviction. And it should sap our strength and it will sap our strength until we wake up and realize what we need to do with it. And David then in verse 5, he says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you and I would not cover my iniquity I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt, the iniquity of my sin. So then I acknowledged. Then I realized. I woke up and said, I need to confess this. I need to agree with God that this is true and it's wrong. Somehow we think that, that if we don't say anything or if I keep it hidden from God, that, that somehow he's not going to hold it against me or somehow he's not going to see it or somehow if I don't admit it, that it's not really wrong until I admit it. But... The opposite is true. It is wrong. And what's best and what most needs to happen in our own lives is that we confess it. Many of you are parents and have been in that situation. Um, I've heard about it where you have watched your child do something. Or maybe there's, you've got a couple of them in a room together and one comes out with teeth marks on the arm that match exactly the teeth of the other one, you know. And the one without the teeth mark says, I didn't do it. And they claim that they did not do it. And you go... How do I explain this? You know what they did. You know that the one bit the other, kicked the other, hit the other, whatever. You don't need somebody to tell you that. It's a fact. However, what most needs to happen is you need to draw out from them the truth. What their little heart most needs is to admit and confess what they did to hurt their brother or their sister. They need to admit that, that they did it, and that it was wrong. And that's what's best for them. And that's indeed, that's what confession is. It is admitting and confessing to God what we have done, admitting that it's wrong, acknowledging it, agreeing with him that it's sin. It appropriates for us subjectively what's already true objectively. Okay? It appropriates, it takes the forgiveness and cleansing which has been purchased objectively on the cross in Christ and it allows us to experience it on a moment-by-moment basis in our agreement with, this, with what we have done. Our forgiveness is there, it's real, and yet the way we experience it is through our confession. Confession is not a work. It's not something that we merit the forgiveness, this confession. 
It, but it's something we do that allows us to experience what God has already provided for us. In our confession, our appropriation, our taking, accepting of God's forgiveness, I'm able to experience it. What's actually true, that I am forgiven and that my guilt has been cleansed. And this is one aspect of our, of our assurance as believers. Now, the word itself to confess in this, if we confess, is, it carries with the idea of an ongoing action. And so for us, this isn't a one-time event. We just do it once and confess all of our sins. What this is getting at is an ongoing action in which we deal with our sin as God brings them to light. As he reveals particular sins in our lives, things we've said, things we've thought, things we've done, we confess them, acknowledge them before God, and accept his forgiveness. And this is an ongoing activity that we do very practically whenever we have experienced his conviction, whenever we see it. You might have heard the phrase, we want to keep short accounts with God. We want to deal with that. As we see we've sinned, as I've snapped at my wife, as I've said something I shouldn't say, I say, God, this is sin, and I confess that to you. And then to reconcile with my wife, to say, no, that was wrong, and to admit that. To admit, to confess it to God, then the next step is to confess it to others. My assurance as a Christian is not built upon my awareness of sin, okay? I don't have to know every sin that I've committed, and it's a good thing I don't. God will see to it that he reveals the sin in my life. But my assurance is built ultimately on my dependence on Christ. Am I running back to him every time I do see sin? Am I depending on him in every point in time in which I see the sin in my life? And so this assurance is built on my dependence on Christ. And guess what it does? As I do that, as I confess and agree what I've done is wrong and I run to him, my dependence grows, my gratitude for him and what he's done grows, the love that I have for him grows because of what he's done in in really rescuing me from my sin and what it would do in my own lives. Now, some would say that this idea of confession carries with this, this notion that somehow it would, doesn't that just help facilitate more and more sin? If all you have to do is go confess it, I think that misses the point. What John is saying here is that we, we want to walk in the light, and he calls us to walk in the light. And the way we deal with our sin is through confession. But look in, in the first two verses of chapter 2. We get the pastoral, fatherly heart from John. Where he says, I'm writing this to you. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Confessing our sin on a consistent basis, accepting what Christ has done, the penalty that he paid for, it does not lead us into more and more sin. If anything, it should do exactly the opposite. Otherwise, we have not understood the message of the gospel. And he says, I'm writing this so you might not sin. But then he says, but if you do sin. But if you do sin. Where am I? I missed my, my place. Um, but if you do sin, anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He goes on to explain that there's provision. Explain how that's done how the cleansing takes place. So we find in us this desire to walk in the light. We want to do that, yet we struggle day in and day out. The way that we do that, the way we reconcile our account, if you will, to accept and to experience God's forgiveness, which is there and objective, is through our confession. Because one of the most dangerous things can happen to a Christian, I've seen this time and time and again, is for sin to go underground and for sin to stay covered up in a person's life. And it stays there, and it produces guilt, 
and it manifests itself in lots of different ways. And in my days working with college students, I can't tell you the number of men, young men that would come to me and, and say, I'm struggling with pornography. I'm addicted to pornography. And for the very first time, they've told somebody beyond just themselves. And for the very first time, they actually openly, they confessed it to somebody. And the power of sin when it's kept hidden is great. Its influence is incredible in a person's life. However, when a person brings it into the light, shares, confides in somebody else, something powerful happens. The gospel then goes to that place where, if you will, it hadn't reached just yet. It brings forgiveness and cleansing of guilt. And so the importance here is that we bring our sin into the light, that we have others around us. And in so doing, guess what? We experience the fellowship with each other and ultimately the fellowship with God that he's promised and the gospel offers. Let's pray. Father, thanks for both what's objectively true and subjectively true that that you have canceled the penalty of sin that was held against us that no longer uh, do we stand under that judgment of sin because of Christ. For those who have entrusted themselves to him and, and found that he is, wor- he is able to do that and they've desired that. And uh, Father, we, we, at the same time, we need on an ongoing basis that our sin, we deal with it on, a, on an ongoing basis, that you would bring that forgiveness that's there, that you would cleanse our souls, so to speak, that we would walk in your light, that you would enable us to, and that sin would not continue to produce the kind of guilt that would lead us farther and farther away from you. Help us to deal rightly and quickly with our sin in, in relation to you, to confess it, to accept the forgiveness that you offer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, like uh, you stand for the benediction. Uh, also, just remind you that uh, elders are available um, just outside the, uh, outside the uh, office there. You could sure join them and, and pray with them. And uh, our response to the benediction this morning is Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. And uh, when we say that, we're saying that we need his forgiveness. We need his righteousness to be able to experience his fellowship with each other and with him. Now receive this. This is God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you in his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Jesus is our righteousness. Hallelujah.